Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. We have another very special guest for you today, and that guest is our very good friend, Lucy Porter. You will remember Lucy from previous episodes on Fish. I know you'll love her. She's so smart, she's so funny. In fact, she's got a stand-up show that is touring at this very moment, which is called Wake Up Call. And really, I'll be honest, the best way to find out about that is to Google Lucy Porter Wake Up Call, and you'll find all the dates, but she's doing the whole of the UK. It's definitely a show that's worth going to see. She also has a podcast called Fingers on Buzzers. It's all about quizzing, and she does that with my very good old friend, Jenny Ryan. It's a brilliant podcast, so listen to that. And she has a Radio 4 stand-up special called Lucy Porter's Lucky Dip which is going out at 11.30 on March the 15th. It'll probably be on the BBC Sounds app after that. So again, Google Lucy Potter's Lucky Dip and you'll find that. And apart from that, just enjoy the show. So nothing more to say apart from on with the podcast. On with the show. Oh, hi, Andy. I've been here the whole time. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Shriver, I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin and Lucy Porter and once again we have gathered round the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one and that is my fact. My fact this week is that it took the creator of the Rubik's Cube a month to solve it the first time he tried. That is mad. A month <laughs> of really trying it's as well. so crazy. You, I would have thought after about 20 or 30 days, you would just make a new one if you'd invented <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah, this doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> so yeah, invented 1974. He was a professor and he just had this idea. What if I could make something that was static on the inside, but fluid on the outside? And that's what gave him the idea. Yeah. And he had a bash at it. It's later been worked out. Quite a famous number, if you know Rubik's Cubes, that 43 quintillion is the number of permutations mm. that you can make on the Rubik's Cube. And uh, so luckily he got there within a month. Yeah. That's pretty good. Well, I'll tell you what's weird. His prototype wasn't three by three. His prototype mm. was two by two. So I've got... This and that the, took him a month. That's the thing. Well, I'm curious to know if this is the one that took him a month because this is... Okay, so Dan's showing us an image and it's like four wooden blocks yeah. um, that have got various colours and numbers on it and they're held together almost by bits of wire. Yeah, there's a wire meshing inside and he took a month to do a Rubik's Cube. It must have been the three by three. It must have been the three by three. Yeah, that one's mm. piss easy. Yeah, exactly. If you're clever enough to make that, you're clever enough to solve it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can do a Rubik's Cube, James. I can, yeah. And I think you can, Lucy. I, well, I, mm, yeah, my children are obsessed with them. We've got oh, cool. hundreds in the house and all those weird ones, you know, there's like weird different shaped ones and mirror ones where there's absolutely no oh. uh, colours on it and stuff. So uh, this is a long way of me saying... I should be. <laughs> and I have at one point been. Wait a second, because James, you know, oh, how I don't to want do to do one this either. one. Because that one's tough, because it's got like Dan's mixing up one from the um, Transport Museum. I'd rather do oh, the do, one yeah, with the colours. James, you do the one with the, with but the colours. The, the other classic. thing is about oh, yeah. the Rubik's Cube is that I find that when you're under pressure, it's almost impossible. Yes. Because mm. you do it kind of with muscle memory. Yes. Uh, yes and then yes. as soon as you start thinking about it, you can't really do it at all. 
Yeah, it, I made a terrible um, decision when because I did learn to do it when my kids got into it, and then I decided we were doing a live podcast recording of fingers on buzzers, and I uh, <laughs> I said, oh, I tell you what will be fun, I'll solve a Rubik's cube while we do this round, <laughs> oh, yeah. and it took about fifteen minutes. <laughs> Is there an algorithm basically? It's like yeah. a set yes. pattern yeah. of moves that will help you work on the side you're working so, on. So, but layers—that's yeah. the key. Yeah, exactly. It's layers, so, not sides. So you, so you can see at the wrong. moment that I've done the bottom layer. Right, or the top layer, right, right, and then right. you do the middle one, then you do the top one. I remember when we oh. went on Only Connect, Andy, and they asked you for facts about yourself, and my fact was that I could do a Rubik's cube in less than a minute. Uh-huh. Um, and the team that we were playing with, apparently, one of them said that he could do three Rubik's cubes in thirty seconds. <laughs> 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 they decided they weren't going to use that fact. <laughs> <laughs> Made you look pretty foolish. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's it's huge the speed cubing because we had to get a timer so that we could record my kids' times. <laughs> And also, my kids said, oh, uh, can we have some cube lube? <laughs> and that's the moment that I was like, well, I'm sorry, what? As a mother, you've got to worry, <laughs> yeah. you? Could we have some cube lube? Is there a brand? Is it a specifically sold lube? There is few? one of the best cube lube. We didn't get good cube lube. So we it's got... called cube lube? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. We got dodgy cool. cube lube. And it's allowed as well. It's, it's allowed in competition. It's legit. Yeah, yeah, you're it's like allowed. chalk on your hands if you're an athlete. Yes. Well, there's just I read a piece about the, you know, there are so many cubes. The world. There hey! we go. Hey! Well, James has just completed the Rubik's Cube. That's why I've been silent for the last three minutes. Yeah. Uh, but by the time I've edited this, it'll be about 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the, the and it just listed the the GAN three five six I carry the yeah. MoU RS three M Maglev the GAN eleven M Pro and it's all there's there's a kind of FIFA of cubing. Yeah. Huh. The World Cube Association. It's such Are they corrupt? <laughs> They're hugely corrupt. Millions and millions of dollars change hands. So 1981, the top-selling book in America was a book that was called The Simple Solution to Rubik's Cube. It sold six million copies, and it was the number one book of the year. It was massive. A guy called James G. Norris, he was a professor. He did it as a pamphlet for his university, and then someone saw it, said, can you expand that into a, like, 64-page book? So it wasn't that big. <laughs> and it was double the expansion of the pamphlet. And uh, so he published it, and in it, he gives uh, categories of what you're labeled as, as a cuber, if you managed to do it within certain times. So this is 1981. 20 minutes, if you did it in that time, Ooh. you were a whiz. 10 minutes, you were a speed demon. Five minutes, you were an expert. And three minutes, you were an MC, the master of the cube. Wow. Oh, that's what I am then. I can do yeah, that. you're a master of the cube. Well, in it, the well, 80s, you were In the been. 80s. Yeah. So Let's not. <laughs> it's actually been updated since so you're, 2013. Um, you're now adult, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Yes. Um. Well, you, James, if you take longer than 60 seconds. I'm I do. Afraid... I take probably about a, a minute and a half. Okay. I'm afraid you don't even qualify as a whiz <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Whereas a whiz was 20 minutes, it's now 60 seconds. Oh, oh, speed demon has gone Good. from 10 minutes to 40 seconds oh my god a expert has gone from five minutes to 15 to 25 seconds and the master of the cube which is now called world champion from three minutes to three to five seconds that's amazing the difference isn't it i can't even pick it up within three seconds (laughs) (laughs) my old arthritic fingers but i because i remember you know i remember the original craze in the 80s i'm old enough for that and it was but it was one of those things that boys would learn to do and this is a terrible sexist generalization but it did tend to be boys would learn to do it thinking it would really impress the girls and yeah. all girls just went meh <laughs> mm. I found that I've never ever impressed a girl with a Rubik's Cube I impressed the um, QI's accountant once oh, yeah. with a few Rubik's Cubes tricks but yeah. he wasn't my type <laughs> um, I did because I brought mine in today so I did sit on the tube 
doing it and you people don't look at you with admiration i'll be honest (laughs) it's pity uh, no no, honey honey we'll just have to get up at the next stop i need to (laughs) is she gonna do it (laughs) Um, the the craze Mm. just is unbelievable the 80s craze so it was the uk toy of the year in 1980 and then again in 1981 as if they just thought We've got to give it to the cube again. Yeah. <laughs> nothing better. Um, so, Dan, you were mentioning the books that sold unbelievably yeah. well. So, at one point in 1982, I think it was four or five different books on the New York Times bestsellers mm. list were Rubik's Cube books. Mm. Um, there was a boy called Patrick Bossert who was 13 years old and wrote a book called You Can Do the Cube and sold nearly a million copies of it. He was the youngest ever author on the New York Times bestseller list. And it kind of came from nowhere, right? Like Dan right. says, it was invented in 1974, and this was 1980. In 1981, though, it was absolutely huge. Yeah. I looked on the newspaper archives, and the first mention of it, it doesn't even call it the Rubik's Cube, it calls it the Hungarian Magic Cube, and this was in 1979. This was in The Observer, and they said that at first, most people tried to take the cube apart, but that is not the object. <laughs> <laughs> and it said, if you even get one face done of the cube in 20 minutes then you've done well and it says but there are several people brackets well at least three that are able to solve the cube in less than five minutes right wow. dan you mentioned that there are 43 quintillion different um states that you can have um the newspaper said and this was in 1979 at one per microsecond a computer would take around 3,000 million years just to <laughs> count up the number of states wow uh, and in 2022 uh, we got the first ever quintillion per second computer. So today, a computer could reach it in just under a minute. Wow. I think what's extraordinary, the numbers are so bamboozlingly yeah. big. It's ba- like there was, I remember reading an interview with Erno Rubik where he was talking about the fact that he'd invented more kinds of Rubik cubes now. And yeah. there was a snake Rubik's cube mm. that he'd invented. Did and you he, buy that, Lucy? I, I did have yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> Rubik's again. snake, which sounds a bit dodgy now. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yes. he, why did they call it the snake and not the Rubik's tube? Uh, Sorry. Very nice. Yeah. Very good. good. But he he said that, and this one has potentially even more permutations. And the guy writing the article just went. Once once you've hit 43 quintillion, (laughs) I'm not impressed anymore. But um, what's interesting, I so very randomly, day before yesterday, I bumped into um, a Rubik's Cube Guinness World Record holder. Um, He's a guy called George. He holds two records, one which he's just done, which I'm not allowed to reveal. Oh, (laughs) I know. How cool is that? I've got secret Rubik's Cube goss. I'll tell you guys after the show. Um, (laughs) The other one is that he has the most Rubik's Cubes solved while riding on a skateboard for I think like an hour or something he did like 500 of them just going around a skate park quick question Dan yeah does it did he have on him a, a bag of 500 Rubik's Cubes which he then had to get out of the skateboard no he have so, a big sack of yeah 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 he what did it yeah it wasn't like Santa yeah he was he, what he was was he had people stationed around the skate park so he'd hand the solved one to the person they would mix it back up and he'd grab a new one as Got he was it, traveling okay. around um, so they mix them back up again, so they use the same ones. Yes, yeah, exactly. It feels kind of pointless. It's a, like a punishment from the gods, actually. Yeah, it's Sisyphean, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he demonstrated one thing I found amazing, which is to do with the bamboozling numbers. If I took this right now and I mix this up to give to him to solve, whatever I've just done here is a combination that he will have never seen yeah. in his wow. life. Every yes. combination is unique because of the 43 quintillion. I just yeah, spent just two can. and a half minutes doing that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> 
I think what's extraordinary, like when it started getting big, there was a big concern that is this thing solvable? So there was a world fair that he was taken to. And he's not a particular, he's quite a philosophical guy. He's quite sort of very serious. And he wasn't the best ambassador of what this item was. But they needed him there to prove it could be solved. Otherwise, it was the Americans, wasn't it? Yeah, they got sent to an American toy company and they thought, well, this is a good toy, but it probably can't actually be done. And I think they sent a, an executive to Budapest to meet Rubik. It's yeah. like, if you can solve this, we'll make it, and we'll manufacture it, and we'll distribute it. Mm-hmm. And then they sold, what, 150 million in the yeah, next three yeah. years. But they yeah. sold it thanks to the most famous Hungarian at the time. Ooh. So Rubik obviously couldn't really do all the press and stuff. And Such a great question. That I'm going Zsa Zsa Gabor, but I can't imagine. Was it? Absolutely, Zsa Zsa Gabor. Zsa Zsa Gabor? Yes. Rubik's Cube, that is not a Venn diagram. <laughs> Amazing, right? So this is the earliest mention of the actual phrase Rubik's Cube I could find. This was from 1980, and Zsa Gabor had put on a party for the Rubik's Cube, where she invited all of her Hollywood friends. Wow. Uh, with a buffet of Hungarian delicacies, it said, but it didn't say what I suppose goulash, but I'm not sure what else wow. was there. Uh, and yeah, that was she was uh, hired by the Ideal Toy Corporation to promote the um, to promote the Rubik's cube. And she said, even if you can't solve it, the cube feels so good in your hands it may replace worry beads. Oh, nice! Yes. Oh, yeah, like the original um, right. fidget spinner, yeah. or like yeah, yeah. a those right. new poppers. Yeah. That, that, that I mean, get. that is true. But, if you yeah. do just play with the Rubik's cube, even if you don't solve it, it is fun to play yeah, with, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially if you've got cube lube, because then yes. it really oh, it flies <laughs> through your hands. I saw an interview with him from quite early, and he said that children are better than adults at solving it. Which would you agree with that, Lucy? Yeah. My own anecdotal experience <laughs> would bear that yeah. out. Yeah. Who was saying all this? Was it Rubik? That was Rubik, Rubik was saying that he had a couple of reasons why he thought that kids would be better. Uh, more, more nimble wrists. <laughs> learning, I think purely physical terms. Uh, smaller hands, so so you know. Yeah. And I, I suppose fearless. Like I always think with technology, oh, yeah. my kids will just pick up anything and go blah 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 blah. Mm. Whereas I am hovering. <laughs> and I think I do, I overthink it a bit. So maybe there's a sort of um, an yeah. impulsiveness. I think overthinking is kind of one thing he said. So he said it requires a certain innocence that children had. Um, because adults will try out a pattern and it doesn't quite work out and they'll just never do that again. Whereas kids will keep trying things. And yeah. the thing is with the Rubik's Cube is it is all algorithms and it's just repeating things again and again and again. And so kids are good at that. Huh. He also said that kids, and I think this is probably quite true, is uh, certain kids anyway will get very absorbed with one thing and won't let anything else distract them. They'll yep. just kind of concentrate on it and do it. And the other thing he said is that kids have good visual memory, and that is true. Yeah. Um, children can have much better mm. visual... And, until around 10 or 11 or 12, they have almost eidetic memories wow. that they can just remember things really well. Oh, God, that's um, interesting. So, yeah. Do you say anything about the wrists? Or? He didn't <laughs> mention <laughs> nimble fingers at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Because <laughs> uh, I know Rubik was Hungarian. Uh, in 1981, the spokesman at the Hungarian embassy in London said, the cube is our secret weapon to pacify the West. <laughs> wow. There was even a cartoon. Did you guys see the cartoon? Yeah. Rubik's Cube. It's a sentient Rubik's Cube that is oh, an the alien. Cartoon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so great. And it was a, um, a Rubik's Cube that was completely useless if it was out of position. So, And that could happen quite easily. If a passing pigeon knocked it, it would just sort of go <laughs> and it would become useless. But if it was in its right solved state, mm. it was this power Powerful, wow. sentient thing. Could he change? Could he solve himself, or did he require? He like, required. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's a good. Yeah. Thing. So it's called Rubik the Amazing Cube, and um, 
um it has and there's i love it his imdb page has you know goofs uh, one of the goofs is even in its solved state the colors of rubik are often in the wrong position white is always across from yellow correct yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. and so it says in many of its solved states the colors are sitting next to each other that shouldn't be <gasps> oh, so yeah goof. what a blue Big goof there. <laughs> um but yeah but it was it was actually it was not a long-lasting series but it was very no. much praised because the um yeah bizarrely it like didn't, such a long-lasting yeah. format <laughs> but um it was the family that the when trusted with the sentient cube was a um latino family and yeah. that was not shown on tv really back then it was so it was a very progressive show it was seen as uh you know it's nice to see a family who aren't white yeah. it's no, the it leads in a cartoon uh, bring it back is what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a film in 2010 which i'm not sure did they ever saw the light they of day that with loads of them didn't they lots of them they like did... loads of toys and they made one or two like battleships they made battleships they? got made <gasps> oh, yeah. but they also announced ridley scott's monopoly which i don't <laughs> think <laughs> happened unless i really missed it Really? But they're about to do Tetris as a big series. Oh, yeah. They're about to do a big Netflix series oh, about wow. Tetris. And it's, uh, I think Guess Who would be a very good one. Yeah. That would, you know, <laughs> yes. very instantly recognisable characters. A murder yeah. mystery. Do you think like a mystery thing? Yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> Did the suspect wear a hat? <laughs> <laughs> it's the weirdest follow-up to Knives Out. Yeah. <laughs> Operation, um, that'd be another good one. Oh, that'd be a Operation. great one. Operation, yeah. yeah. Grueling, harrowing medical yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> it's his funny bone. <laughs> yes, get the tweezers. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Lucy. It is this fact. On at least three occasions in the last 16 years, the government of Shanghai has tried and failed to stop people wearing pyjamas outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems, I mean, famously Chinese authorities are so laissez-faire, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of can't believe. The fact they've tried and failed is quite interesting. As yeah. in, it doesn't yes. say much for the all-powerful machinery of the state. <laughs> you can't even stop people wearing their pyjamas out. I don't think they've sent the army in. I think oh, they've, okay. You know, okay. they've, they've just disapprovingly said you shouldn't do this. No. Well, I haven't really tried then. I think. <laughs> yeah, there's been several attempts because it's it's quite a big thing, particularly in Shanghai, for people to wear pajamas out and about. Right. Uh, and it's they think it's partly because in the early 20th century it was a real status symbol to be able to afford imported mm. pajamas. So people would uh, take to the streets in their finery, going, "Look, I can afford these and slippers, and ooh, yeah. they've got little yeah. teddy bears on them or whatever." And uh, so it's it was sort of a status symbol, and then it's mm. just become a, a thing and I mean I'm all into it because I wear pajamas at all times right. I'm doing a tour at the moment in which I wear pajamas so I'm very much on the side <laughs> on stage you're yes, pajamas yes 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 because I decided during lockdown there's nothing you can't like if I do a zoom <laughs> and the other person is wearing something smart I think you absolute loser mm. why would you dress up to have a meeting in your own home especially yeah. now you think if they're not wearing three layers and a blanket you think oh showing off you can afford heating <laughs> so what you're doing then is possibly what they're doing in China as well which is you've got daytime pajamas and then you'll go home and you probably have nighttime pajamas yes. that you wear right this is what they do in China yeah. so these aren't the pajamas they're waking up in and just going out onto the street they'll get out of their pajamas to put on some pajamas to right. then go out into the really? street. Yeah, they are the day wear oh. pajamas. I can't say that for everyone, but that's for yeah, a lot of that's people. To be honest, I would try and get away with 
going, oh no, these are my fancy pyjamas. <laughs> and they'd be like, why have they got egg stains all day? <laughs> no. no, no, I definitely didn't sleep in these. Definitely didn't. Have you ever done a school run or anything in your pyjamas, Lucy? Well, do you know, I was on um, Five Live the other day because the Prime Minister's wife had gone and done the school run in her slippers, right. except oh. they were like £500 oh, slippers. Yeah, I saw this. And yeah. Five Live phoned me up and said, oh, for our breakfast show tomorrow, do you want to do a you know, phone-in about great. should you be allowed to wear <laughs> slippers on the school run? And of course, I'm desperate to promote my tour, so I said yes. <laughs> But the great thing was, nobody cared. And it was one of those, it's really? lovely when you're part of a sort of supposedly controversial phone-in that is not at all controversial. But did people just phone in and say, I don't care? Yeah, oh, they just said, well, you amazing. can wear what you want. This is a tangent. Do you know the most amazing radio phone-in I've ever heard? <laughs> I was in a, a, like a, a cab on the way somewhere or something. It was quite a long journey. This is 2020. And it was, if we get a new royal yacht, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Should Prince Andrew be allowed to go on it? Okay? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. not going to be a new royal yacht. It's just oh, it's not. not. No. Yeah. And people had such strong opinions. <laughs> <laughs> this must have been in the first two months of 2020, I it assume. Was. Yeah. It was. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. events overtook uh, that one. <laughs> well, how do, where do you stand on what should Prince Andrew be allowed on the royal yacht? Allowed. Um, oh, God, he's actually thinking about it. <laughs> It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's a, it's a taxpayer-funded yacht. Yeah. You know, if they're buying their own yacht, they can do what they like on it, I guess. Yeah. But if, we're, if I'm paying for this yacht, yeah, I think I am actually angry about it. <laughs> I think he shouldn't be allowed to go on it. <laughs> what, what if he's not allowed to come above decks? What if he's only allowed in the kind I of, think he should cabin? be allowed to be in steerage. <laughs> That's fine. That's more worrying. You can't keep him, like, hidden in a basement. You don't want to get on that yacht and then discover Andrew downstairs. <laughs> Oh, God, no. They used to use sign language on the old royal yacht. Did they? Yeah, Why? because they wanted to keep it quiet for the royals. So they oh. had this complicated system of, like, waving at each other. That's not typical BSL sign language. No, sorry, they yeah, had a specific, yeah. like, a royal yacht-based hand language. Wow. Of, like uh, the people on Ryanair, when they need a new tin of Pringles, they have a special sign that they make. Do they? Yeah, yeah. The um, attendants, they have a secret sign language code Amazing. for whatever they've run out of. <laughs> and you'll notice that. it now. Next time you've got a flight, you'll yeah, notice yeah. it. Do Can't they make wait. the shape of a hyperbolic paraboloid for a Pringle? <laughs> I don't know. That... I'm not party to the code. <laughs> but I just, I know that That's it exists. so good. Like yeah. bookmakers. Bookmakers yes, and like uh, air crew. Yeah. All got oh, nice. Specific hands I can get us back to pyjamas. Go on. The other thing they did on the Royal Yacht was I think they wore soft-soled shoes, the crew, so they weren't stamping around the decks and presumably infuriating Princess Margaret or something. <laughs> so they, they had a specific, you know, yeah. Everything cool. was designed to... Well, speaking of pyjamas... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did used to be outdoor things, didn't they? Oh. Um, well, they originated in um, like Persia, Ottoman Empire, mm. uh, and they were just basically loose-fit trousers which you would tie around the waist. They were taken by the colonial British, mm. and they realised that actually they were quite nice to sleep in. Uh, so that's how they became pajamas. But Coco Chanel thought that we should wear them down the beach, and they became really fashionable. People wearing pajamas down the beach in the 1920s and 30s. Gosh. Oh, really? Yeah. There was a place called. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's in France, so it's J U A N. So is it Juan? Juan Le Pan. I think it is. Juan Le Pan. I think it's Juan Le Pan. I've seen yeah. it and not been able to pronounce okay, it, but well, I'm going go with Gusto. It feels like Juan Le Pan feels like the nice way to say it, right? <laughs> um, but it was called Pajama Land in English and Pajamapolis 
in French because there were so many people in pyjamas wow. on the beach in that town. Wow. I think it does come and go as a fashion, doesn't yeah. it? And there's pockets of it. I remember being in Cardiff for quite a long time and there was one area of Cardiff where everybody went out in their pyjamas all the time. Is that right? Really? But Day yeah. pyjamas or, or the ones they slept in? I think those sort of the ones they slept in. Wow. But it's a fine line between leisure wear. But the, um, there's been... Shall I tell you about the various attempts to shut down uh, pyjama wearing in, oh, in China? Yes. Yeah. So... In the 1990s, there was an education campaign and they put signs up in Shanghai saying, please don't wear your pyjamas. 2008, the Rixin neighbourhood in northeast Shanghai had a public campaign saying, don't wear your pyjamas. But then 2020 in Suzhan City, which is near to Shanghai, there was a social media post entitled Exposing Uncivilised Behaviour, Increasing the Quality of Residence, and the local <laughs> government put out various pictures of people who were engaged in antisocial behaviour, including seven people in pyjamas, and oh. they used facial recognition technology to find out who they were and oh. put their names up. Oh, and no. Which, what you need there is you need pyjamas that have got some sort of balaclava. Face pyjamas, yeah. Yes. A sleep mask. Oh, a sleep mask, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, it does seem extraordinary. I think around the Shanghai World Expo in 2010 as well, there was quite a campaign to uh, stop yeah. people wearing their pyjamas. Yeah, that was a big one, wasn't it? They, the government at that one hired sort of 500 members of the public who volunteered to sort of stand at bus stops and just just if someone in pyjamas came Jeez. along and go, hey, that looks daggy. You need to change out of that, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, 500 Aussies. Yeah. 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 Do you know what kind of pyjamas James Bond wears? Ooh. Or what he wears to bed? Surely he doesn't wear anything. I mean, because I don't wow. think pyjamas are sexy, are they? Can they be sexy? Well, oh. great point. Because there are obviously fancy silk pyjamas, which might be sexy, or there are sort of grubby cotton ones, which might not be, or mm. might be. Satin uh, but... pyjamas aren't sexy because they cling. It's like you mm. get static, unless it's proper silk. Yeah, yeah, That's a problem. Um, yeah. All the balloons in the house just kind of <laughs> <laughs> themselves to you. <laughs> so Anthony Horowitz is a thriller yeah. writer. Yeah. He writes, he writes, you know, lots and lots and lots of books. And he, for a while, was the um, he wrote James Bond sequels. Yeah. He was the official. Sanctioned estate's estate's choice for and he wrote a couple of Bond books and one of them was called Trigger Mortis right Mm. and he wanted to great name and in the start of the book in pretty much the opening chapter Anthony Horowitz wrote a description of Bond jumping out of bed naked and he sent this off to the Fleming estate and they got back in touch they said you can't have that because it's official Bond canon in one of the books I can't Mm -hmm. remember which one it is I think it's You Only Live Twice or something Bond wears a bed jacket which is oh, oh my gosh. it's maybe the least sexy item of clothing you could possibly imagine it's kind of buttons up to the neck and it goes down to the knees and I oh, think it's like a, a sort of wee Willy Winky nightshirt <laughs> style so he just rewrote it not saying that Bond was naked he just didn't yeah. he didn't describe the bed jacket because he thought that would be a so way of funny. destroying we, Bond the undid the top button of his <laughs> night jacket Bond hung up his nightcap on the side <laughs> you just imagine a little packet of Rennies in the pocket a, oh there's a hanky in there how long has that been in there Interestingly, for a very long time, the the classic trouser pajama with the 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 jacket button up kind of thing, yeah. for a long time worn by men, and that changed during World War One. This is where women started wearing it. This is according to a professor at the University of Glasgow called Lucy Whitmore, who talked about the fact that Zeppelin raids meant that whenever you heard the alarm and you needed to run out of your house. It got to a point oh, where yeah. you became quite conscious of what you were wearing. You yeah. would yeah. come out in your nighty. You might look a bit dishevelled, and also it's not the most practical thing to be running around in a nighty. So, yeah. so to begin with, this, at the start of it, it would be people would leave 
very nice looking jackets in a very good spot so that as the raid was happening and they would grab it and go out and look fashionable there was an old lady who suggested leading leaving an emergency toupee uh by the door as well so you could grab that on the way out and then eventually people started wearing uh women rather started wearing pajamas and the popular color was dark blue because if you're outside you obviously don't want any come on you don't want to give away i I guess if you're being bombed you want to do everything to stop yourself from being seen right is that also why you need the toupee to stop the bald (laughs) yeah yeah light reflecting back up yeah dan widley i found the same zeppelin based first world war fact in it i was I went to the library to do a bit of research on this one and I got a there are a couple of books about the history of underclothes and I sat there looking like a dirty old man (laughs) sitting in the library well you did have your penis out (laughs) you should never (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) but almost every page of the book had a a a line drawing of some corset or some some girdle or something and I just I was quickly flipping through I'm I'm just here for the pyjamas actually I want the least sexy stuff do you know what though anyone looking at that would go that is the most adorable thing if that's how you getting your kicks <laughs> I'm looking at line drawings of ladies petticoats <laughs> it's just it's not Andrew Tate is it let's be honest <laughs> and what did, did you find anything extra on the on the underclothes because they were the onesie was sort of invented in that period as well wasn't it we yeah. know Winston Churchill used to love oh, yeah. wearing a onesie and that was a World War he One. he called his like a boiler suit siren suit siren suit siren yeah, suit. yeah, for the air raid yeah sirens, they had yeah. slumber suits that I think that was later I I've only just realised he meant siren suit because of the air raid sirens yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that he would <laughs> sit on a rock and sing <laughs> Imagine if he had a lovely singing voice. We never really heard him sing. Yeah, so I wanted to meet them on the beaches. <laughs> we will seduce them on the beaches. Um, most men claim not to wear anything to bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but you're doubting them. Okay, interesting. I am doubting them, I think. I think pyjamas have a reputation of being a bit cosy and a bit comfy and a bit, uh, you know. Yes. I think there is a sense that men want to be thought of as being tough and rugged and like, oh, I don't wear anything to bed, even if it's minus four in the house or whatever. Is there not? And it, now, listen, I know nothing of the male anatomy. I'll put that right out there. But is there not? Do things not get a bit twisted? And I, I would imagine discomfort if you slept completely naked as a man. Do things not? Is it not no, nice? That's all right. That's okay. Is it all right? Oh, okay. Yeah, good good to know. Good to know. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> never been woken up by that. <laughs> You've never, never twisted anything. Or, no, okay. <laughs> it's got a trap under the bed again. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, you're going to have to phone the fire brigade again. <laughs> Oh, if you tried to leap out for an air raid and you've got it. Gotcha. Oh, um, I feel like that was one of the weirdest moments ever on our podcast where you had three guys yeah, sitting yeah. here picturing ourselves naked in bed. The poor oh. listeners now. The, the mental is... images. Please send in your fan art. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is, the flow of the Amazon is so big that even a hundred miles into the Atlantic, you could drink over the side of your ship and the water would still be fresh. Amazing. (laughs) That's incredible. I love it. I should say where I got this fact first of all. It's from a a guy called Thomas Pueyo on Twitter. And um, so I thought, I 
I couldn't believe it when I first read it. And so I did a bit more, you know, looking. And some sources say the water's going to be a bit brackish. You know, it might not be totally <laughs> yeah. sparkling, Evian-style fresh. But it would definitely be noticeably less salty. Mm. So you would not be able to see South America if you were 100 miles out. And you would still get water that was so much less salty. If you were, let's say you were sailing across the ocean. Yep. Mm. Before you knew where you were, you could keep tasting the water, yeah. and as it got less and less salty, you could almost find your way to the. What to an the incredible shop. idea! Yeah, yeah, to navigate your way yeah, there. Yeah. Well, sailors must have worked that out, though, because yeah. they're very w- wise. There'll be some sort of sailor, so. you know, sailor rhyme like if if the water tastes <laughs> <Go on>. nice, <laughs> if the water tastes nice, Brazil'll be in in a trice. <laughs> if the water tastes salty, then you're compass is faulty oh, really oh. there you go um it's so every single day the water that we're talking about that ex- that sort of pushes out into uh, the atlantic yep. it's 17 billion metric tons of water that flows out it's hard there. to work out what that is what that it? equates to if you were getting fresh water in new york city that's the daily amount for nine years that would be used nine years wow. worth of fresh water in new york city is it's what goes out billion. daily Holy Into moly. the Atlantic. They should move New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't that know if that's practical, but, but it's yeah. weird that it, we can't somehow harvest it. It's just going into. It's just disappearing. What, it, Becoming salty. I think eventually. it is useful. Yeah. I think it's, it goes into the water cycle and eventually, you know, rains down on us. Yeah, but we could keep the planet alive. No, I don't think. I, th- I think we've done enough mucking around. Actually, <laughs> I think maybe we should just leave no, the Amazon. I actually disagree. I think a, a huge pipe <laughs> yes. at the mouth of the Amazon yeah. that just takes it all the way to New York. Brilliant. Not New York, but somewhere that needs fresh water. There's lots of places where they don't have water. Yeah, somewhere closer. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, like New Orleans. Yeah, there you go. New yeah. Orleans. I can't see it not working. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying it's a yeah. bit of a waste. That's 17 <laughs> billion <laughs> metric tons. I, I, it's a waste. Oh. I really don't think it's a waste. <laughs> Donald Trump listening to this is going to be diverted to his golf courses somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, anyway, the Amazon. It's big. It's big. It's it blows my mind. In fact, my mate's got a new Brazilian girlfriend and he he was saying, you know, you go to Brazil. It's just massive, mate. It's just massive. <laughs> <laughs> the um, thing hot. I always find interesting about the Amazon is that you can't build uh, bridges. Yeah. Because mm. it's too... Because it, it, the width of it varies so much and it's sort of so soft, crumbly oh. at the edges. So it would have to be such a massive bridge because yeah, yeah, it would have yeah, to yeah. start. So, and so what, they just go across on boats and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So, and there's, yeah. yeah because they've built one now. There it's is one, the but Amazon. it's right up is at it the north. Okay. It's, sort yeah. of it's, up it's up over a tributary. Right. It's the Rio Negro, which is, uh, which is a tributary of the Amazon, but it's before it joins the river proper, yeah. basically. So there are no bridges across the Amazon, Amazon. And uh, yeah, like you say, Lucy, it's, it, uh, during the wet season, the Amazon is 190 kilometers wide at its widest. That's wide. That is really wide. Imagine wow. from here to Stoke. Yeah. Like that. Maybe Stafford. Somewhere it's further. In fact, my electric car wouldn't be able to drive. If there was a bridge that went over <laughs> that bit, <laughs> there would have to be a charging point on that bridge. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't be God, able to get across. That's wide. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. I like that the Amazon River is part of effectively an Amazon River sandwich. It's the <laughs> it's the meat of of a sandwich in that. Go on. Well, this is a tortured metaphor. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about, and even I'm struggling to get on this. Well, there's a there's a river below it. The Hamza. And there's a river above it. Oh, is there? Well, there's more there's more water above the Amazon River in the clouds 
above uh, the actual uh, Amazon itself. Do the there is clouds kind of follow the shape of the river? Yeah, or? I believe do so. They? Yeah. yeah. Huh, it's, that's it's, it's water vapor stream, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah. I think it's 20 billion tons 20 of water. 20 billion metric tons of water, yeah. yeah that, and incredible. that's more water that's than is actually in the in the river itself, they say. That's yes. very clever. Isn't it something like every tree, in a, like a big tree in the Amazon, perspires or transpires or whatever it is, a thousand litres of water in a day. Yeah, that's right. One Sweat, tree. Like sweats it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One tree. And then underneath, you've got the, the Hamza. Yeah, yeah, so secret underground river. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, the... You you can only get to it if you defeat uh, uh, an Aztec boss on the or final Prince level. <laughs> so yeah, so under the Amazon there is a sort of aquifer that is uh, even wider, even bigger, even bolder, even brasher. <laughs> it's Amazon Two, the Revenge, um, and it's yeah the River Hamza named after the um, Strictly winner this year, obviously. Oh, not Abu Hamza. <laughs> it's got a big Ranger. hook in it, yeah. yeah. Ranger Hamza. Yeah, and it's very it's quite recently discovered isn't it so yeah. Hamza was the name of the huh. head of the team that discovered it and um, it's very low down and 4, very meters slow below moving the river itself yeah. wow. super and slow it, moving yeah. to the point where you can't really call it a river well, like it's it's not flowing it moves at one millimeter an hour yeah that's yeah. flowing I relate to this river very hard <laughs> <But if> you, <laughs> it's very slow low down <laughs> if you drop something in it You'll be reunited with it quite quickly. It yeah. won't be swept away suddenly. <laughs> Your game of poo sticks would be quite <laughs> low stakes, wouldn't it? Exactly. <laughs> the giant Amazon leech, which you find in the Amazon River, uh-huh. do you think it's longer or shorter than the world's longest cat tail? <laughs> <laughs> now, I actually know the length of the leech, but I have no idea about the world's longest cat That's the difficulty tail. of this quiz question. You actually need two quite arcane bits of knowledge to mm. even make a guess. I think honest. the longest cat tail is not that long, really. Uh, really? Well, this is domestic, domestic cat. Yeah, okay, thank sorry, you. Okay, very great. Because yeah. I, oh right, here, here we go. I think the leech is about a forearm. I think it's about eighteen inches. Okay. They're like the biggest giant leech. Yeah, yeah. So is a cat's is the longest ever cat's tail longer or shorter than eighteen inches? I'd say cat's. This tail gives is... it away a bit. It's a Ferndale cat. Oh. Well, now you've made it too easy, and I, actually, <laughs> I don't want to submit an answer anymore. Is it exactly the same length? Well, Andy is spot on with the 18 inches yes. for the wow. for the Amazon leech, um, and the longest cattail, according to Guinness, is 17 inches. <gasps> Do you wow. think that the giant Amazon leech <laughs> is longer or shorter than the height of the world's tallest donut? <laughs> mm. Right, so, so it's good now we know we've got 18 inches. You've put the donut right. down flat. Yeah, so not the diameter, right. not the yeah, roundness, yeah, yeah. it's how tall it goes. I think the donut's taller. I, yeah. No, I think it's still the leech. Yeah, Andy knows his stuff. <laughs> uh, tallest donut, 16 inches tall. It was quite wide, in fairness. Right. Yeah, yeah but yeah. actually, what's that foot and a foot yeah, and a half? Yeah, it was about... I mean, that's a tall, that's a tall donut. I could eat that, though. That's <laughs> not that you don't. <laughs> sort of, yeah, I want the world's biggest donut to be a donut that I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't eat that. Big as a house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can make yeah. novelty donuts that big. Or like Surely. the ring road of a small town. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Oh, this is a great quiz. That's the end of it. Oh. Well, I loved uh, it. I had a great time. Have you heard of the Amazon Tall Tower Observatory? No, this is a no. cool thing. Okay, so this is, and it's a really new thing as well, actually. So it's an observatory. It's, um, but not a, a space observatory. It's to observe, it's to look down at the Amazon. And so it's in the middle of the rainforest. And uh, the trees are, what are the tall trees? They're about 80 to 100 meters, aren't they? Like a good tall sure. tree is up to, a, you know, that's a really tall tree, 100 meters. And the tower, meters. that's, yeah, I think the tallest ever tree is about 120 meters, like the tallest wow. ever measured, wow, you know. Okay. But this tower is 325 meters 
Okay, it's a it's That's a tall. it's about as tall as the Eiffel Tower, which actually is really tall when you when you look at it. You mm. know. The Eiffel Tower. Yeah. Wow, busting some myths today, aren't we? Aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I never think of it as tall, but actually, if you, I went it's there. Big, the Eiffel yeah, Tower. It's, it's yeah, big. you can yeah. see it from a long way away. Exactly, yeah. and this is it's much thinner than the Eiffel Tower. It's just one needle going up <laughs> okay. from the like it looks Ooh. it looks mad. This thing. And I was up the Eiffel Tower once. <laughs> Go on. In a restaurant, yeah. and um, we were, had a table next to the window, which yeah. was really nice, yeah. and it was overlooking the bridge. And what you would see is they had these guys playing, you know, we have three cups and you oh, have yeah. to hide the ball mm. and just taking loads of money. And then about every 20 minutes, the police would turn up and they would <laughs> leg it. And then you could watch them go all the way down the river, over the next bridge, back over again, Amazing. and then back on the bridge and then start Amazing. playing again. And then the police would turn up. It was like a cat and mouse of... I really thought you were going to say that from your perspective, you could, on the see. Tower, you could <laughs> see which cup it was under. And I just yelled down, yeah. middle one! That's what I was thinking. Your wife's down there. Look it up. You've got special cup ball sign language you've developed. How are they doing it? We have have never been fucked before. Let's go in that restaurant too. We didn't get a window seat. No, well, you need to. What is the point? (laughs) I know. know. Are there tables which don't have window seats in the Eiffel Tower? Just looking at a big piece of iron. God, they really saw you coming. Was it on the ground floor? Was it? I mean, was it did you get the basement table? Is she in Prince Andrew's? Set? Didn't know Peter Express was in France. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't. Is the restaurant still going? Is there yeah, a yeah. restaurant? Yeah. Yeah. Jules Verne, I think wow. it's called. Or I wasn't even. I didn't even get into the restaurant. <laughs> Me neither. We'll no. go together. Yeah, I love that. Um, so this the- tall tree. Oh yeah, this observatory is oh, yeah. is 325 meters, and it's it's actually it's one meter taller than the Eiffel Tower, um, and it's got 1,500 steps up to it. It's, and it takes about an hour to walk up oh, to the top. Okay. I don't I don't know if there's a lift actually, and basically it's just to sniff sniff the breath of the forest as oh, they nice. call it you know they're, oh, they're measuring wow. all the chemicals in the air when there are forest fires you know they measure the concentrations <sighs> and how dangerous that is and deforestation they can you know they can tell things about that and yeah. the tree emissions and it's just I just think it's amazing yeah. imagine mm. you go up you've forgotten your glasses and you can't <laughs> read it <laughs> just snip back down again. I can't even see the guy with the cup and the ball <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that while playing a psychiatric patient in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Danny DeVito ended up becoming a psychiatric patient himself. Was he he going method? um, Some people did go method. We might get to that. But DeVito's problem really is quite sweet, actually. Um, He had recently um, gotten together with Rhea Perlman, the actor. um, The amazing Rhea Perlman. And Cheers, right? Just to put uh, her head in your... your, Carla from Cheers. yeah. Uh, And obviously they were filming, or not obviously, but they were filming a long way away from where she was. uh, 3,000 miles, in fact. And so he was really missed her and in order to deal with that separation he invented an imaginary friend to talk to at night and he became a little bit concerned about his mental health perhaps because they were making this film and there was a lot of it in the air Mm. Uh, and so he decided to see the doctor on set who was called Dr. Brooks and asked for his advice and Dr. Brooks said yeah don't worry about it as long as you're aware that it's an imaginary friend imaginary friend's perfectly normal thing to have it's no problem at all wow. yeah. but also that doctor the on-set doctor was actually in the movie of course was he yeah it so was the weirdest Dr. Thing, wasn't it? Brooks yeah so he but yeah. an amazing man because he owned the clinic 
in which they filmed it. So it's no wonder they were all a little bit stir crazy because they're in an actual mental institution filming yeah. this very intense uh, movie. He's and the one who sort of checks in Jack Nicholson's character, McMurphy, at the start of the film and interviews him. And he, I, th- I, think, I don't know if he was going to be in it, but he was really insistent that everyone in the institution, all the patients, got involved with the film. Mm. He was quite forward-thinking. You know, he took lots That's... of the patients on expeditions. He took them whitewater rafting and he taught them kind of to rappel down cliffs and things like that. I mean, like, really... Because wow. this was in the 70s they were filming it. It was pretty progressive at the time. And yeah. I think yeah. about 90 inmates ended up involved in the film in some capacity or another. Yeah, um, it's really yeah. cool. I must say I haven't seen the film. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I've heard very good things about it, so I will try and watch it. (laughs) And I started reading the book this week and got about a third of the way through, but I think the book's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. apparently the film's even better. So the, the, they're both. Amazing. Tell you what was yeah. even better was a stage production that oh. was uh, put on about twenty years ago, two thousand and four. Um, I was in oh. a stage production. Who were you? I was. Were you the giant Native the, American? Yes, that's me, <laughs> Chief Bromden. That was me. Um, well, no. Do you know what though? So we did this basically. So it was. Um, Christian Slater from Heather's etc came over and was McMurphy so and it was amazing because it was at that time there weren't that many West End shows with big Hollywood stars McMurphy being Jack Nicholson's role in the movie exactly yes the main guy and um and I played, I played a nurse who had about two lines. And I, some of my friends came to see it, and uh, they said, "Oh, we just thought you were being modest." Because I'd said, oh, "I'm playing a nurse who mumbled over the cuckoo's nest." And they were like, "Oh, we thought you were just being modest, and you were playing Nurse Ratchet, but you really were just <laughs> a nurse who has two lines." Because Francis Barber was Nurse Ratchet, and wow. Mackenzie Crook was in it. And wow. Mackenzie ben, Crook, yeah, yeah, he Whoa. played Billy, the sort of little oh, yeah, shy. Oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good role for him. I can yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Should we super quickly just say what the basic premise? Just for anyone who hasn't seen it, is a bit confused. Oh God, we should, shouldn't we? Yeah, it's it's Jack Nicholson is. Um, God, I, it's been so long. Yeah, Lucy. So, uh, so yeah, Jack Nicholson plays McMurphy, who is this sort of tearaway who is sent to this secure psychiatric facility, at which Nurse Ratched is this horrible nurse who sort of rules with a reign of terror over everybody. And I think there is one nice nurse though, isn't there? Who just has a couple of lines. <laughs> there is the, the, the star of the yeah. entire production is that nice nurse. Yeah, um, and then the um, Indian chief. Oh, spoilers! Are we worried about that? Uh, no, I think? It came out quite a long time ago. Yeah. So uh, anyway, Jack Nicholson kind of creates this air of chaos and rebellion in the place and rebels against Nurse Ratched. And then the um, chief Bromden, the Native American chief, uh, smothers him with a pillow. We, we should maybe say that Jack Nicholson's character suffers a lobotomy. Oh yeah, sorry. He's, he's yeah. not just that Chief Bromden wants to restore <laughs> order in the <laughs> hospital. Exactly. It's, it's a mercy killing, basically. Yeah. And, and the whole Jack- sort of thing is, it's not, hey, we're not mad, society's mad, and who yeah. are the real, you know, yeah, all McMurphy's of that stuff. Point, and there's a bit of the book where McMurphy finds out that all the patients are allowed to leave if they want to, they just don't. He, mm. He's incredibly freaked out by it. He says, why don't you just go home? You're allowed. And he says, well, I'm, I'm not ready to, and, you know, the, the person he's talking. It's yeah. amazing. Anyway, um, it sounds like it was a very tense filming experience in lots of ways as well, because mm. you had a lot of big personalities. You had um, Ken Casey, who wrote the book, and then ended up hating the film, mm. never watched it. Yeah. Once he once started watching it when it was just on TV, and then he realised what film he was watching and changed channel. <laughs> I mean, I love that. Just point That's blank. Amazing. He was channel flipping, yeah, and he was yeah. like, "Oh, what's this? <laughs> yeah, this looks, this looks oh, great!" Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> um, and then so the director was uh, Milos Forman uh, and Jack Nicholson, and Milos Forman had a big disagreement about Murphy's character and. Um, 
basically it's very ordered and then Jack Nicholson arrives and he turns the place upside down and Milos Forman wanted it to be more like it was already chaotic and then he arrives Mm. and he sort of draws the patients together and they become a team they had a big falling out over that and they would end up they ended up they were only talking to each other through the cinematographer Mm. so it would have to be kind of so can you tell (laughs) Jack Nicholson to act this way in the I I mean it just sounds so tense but Danny DeVito as well because he I mean I'm a huge fan of Danny DeVito Mm. and remembered him as Lou in Taxi, the oh, sort wow. of okay, do yeah. a dispatcher. But he, um, when he was in Matilda, the actress who played Matilda said that actually, although he was playing a horrible dad, she he actually became like a really lovely father figure to her. And then, you know, in Mum Play Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you could argue that he actually was playing a sort of psychiatric patient, but he was taking care of his mental health. Yeah. What I'm no, saying is he's always the opposite of how he appears. And actually, in Twins... If you put him and Arnold Schwarzenegger he, together, he's he, taller. He's t- <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a film. What a Twins. movie. He yeah. was um, inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame in 2010. Uh, so I thought I'd look at some other people who are in the New Jersey, <gasps> the New Hall, of Jersey Hall of Fame. <laughs> so you've got um, Buzz Aldrin, Frank Sinatra. Oh, okay. Do you uh, have to be from New Jersey? Can I just ask? Well, uh, Thomas Edison is there, born in Ohio. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yogi Berra, born in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Harriet Tubman, born in Maryland. And Albert Einstein, not even born in America. <laughs> so we've all got a shot at the New Jersey Hall Proud of Fame. Son of New Jersey, I think yeah. you have to have lived there for a while because um, Einstein oh. worked in Princeton, of course. So, uh, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. On One Flew Over, yeah. it was nearly defeated by the Cold War. It nearly got, didn't get turned into a film because of the Iron Curtain. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know really? this? This no. is cool. So I didn't know. So the, the book came out in the early 60s. And yeah. um, Michael Douglas, no, sorry, Kirk, Kirk Douglas, yeah, bought the rights. He was in the play. Oh, he yeah. was in the first play version. And then the film is actually based on the play, not on the book, which is maybe why Ken Casey hated the mm. film. But so Kirk Douglas was the initial McMurphy, which is mad. It's so strange to imagine now because it's so Jack Nicholson's role. And then he bought the rights, and he wrote to Milos Forman in Czechoslovakia and said, "Got this great play, got the rights to it. Think it should be a film. I'll send you a copy of the book." Milos Forman said, "Great." The book was then seized by Czech customs oh. in 1963. And it took more... And Foreman was really annoyed because Kirk Douglas said, I'll send you a book. Never sent the book. Rude. <laughs> Kirk Douglas was very annoyed because Milos Foreman never said thank you for the book. Rude. <laughs> it took a decade to sort out this misunderstanding between them. The film was made in something like 1975, I yeah, think. I mean, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It took a long time. And eventually <laughs> Kirk Douglas gave the rights to his son, Michael, who then said... Shall we just try again with this book thing? Do um, we think that the sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. Sorry. Do we think that the Czech customs didn't mm. let the book go initially because they were worried that it was seditious or maybe it's not clear. It's not. It's oh. not clear why it was seized. Maybe they just wanted to read it. I, yeah. I have no <laughs> I idea. Yeah. Like if it was like the Rubik's cube, but going in the opposite direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've no idea. Yeah, I genu- I don't know what their reasoning was. I wonder. Was, Kessie but... was quite notorious as a LSD proponent. Uh, he was quite yeah, famous yeah, with yeah, the yeah. counterculture of America at that point. He had that a bus that he used to take everyone on. And they used to... <laughs> oh, well, what, a, what a radical free <laughs> it thinker! It was a psychedelic bus. Oh my god, yeah. a multicolored bus! Oh, we got that. We have those all the time. We got <laughs> London buses are bright red. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's what it represented. He, he had. They were called the Merry Pranksters, and they used to. And Tom Wolfe wrote a whole book about this. It was a non 
non-fiction book about these guys who just would go around they used to do things like they would have people playing flutes on the top of the bus who I feel <laughs> buses where people have been playing the flute were they on <laughs> LSD? yeah <laughs> probably just was a public one? safety warning do not take acid on a London bus <laughs> yeah. you really it's not a friendly environment to do that but it is possible it was the counterculture thing and his name was very much associated right. with that that's a good point I don't know yeah, if it was it's possible yeah. It's interesting because he was an author already at this point, Cassie, before he wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm. And he was working on a book called Zoo. And in order to fund it, he needed a job. So he worked at a psychiatric ward in order to fund it. And the book idea came to him when one night he was in there. I think he was cleaning and he was on peyote and he was tripping and he saw a full-blown Chief Broomden there as a sort of vision just a and psychedelic what's peyote yeah oh, sorry a, oh sorry is it like a cactus or something yeah it's like a cactus which you oh. yeah it's a it's a drug sorry i know it is a I'm word sorry. and i know it's a drug but i can't tell you the specifics come on Andy, yeah. big old square <laughs> sorry not to her yeah, yeah. peyote yeah. yeah um but he said he saw a full-blown native american he said indian chief broom the solution the whole mothering key to the novel and oh. that's how yeah. he wrote of right. the, the novel in because wow. in the novel he's the main like the narrator right yeah. the narrator sorry and in the yeah. movie not he's not movie, and that's a... why Kessie immediately hated it it wasn't yeah. told from the perspective of him he is a big character in it but he's he's not yeah yeah interestingly um, the guy who got the role of Chief Bromden got it because Michael Douglas was sitting next to a used car dealer on a plane and the used car dealer's dad was an acting agent who had a load of Native American actors on his books and so, and the thing about Chief Bromden is he's about eight feet tall in the yeah. thing and, 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 so, and Michael Douglas got a phone call saying I have just met the tallest Native American guy you've ever seen. And it was Will something, I can't remember his name. Who, his name. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, he got the role as, as Will Sampson. Sampson. Will Will Sampson. Sampson. Oh, that's a nice name for someone incredibly tall. Yeah. And he's got long hair. Wow. Oh my yeah. God, it's perfect. So this, this movie was made in in an actual as we've said hospital mm. uh that was originally it was called the oregon state mental hospital it's since been renamed as now oregon state hospital and it's a it's an interesting place in its own right it had a really controversial bit which was they found five thousand canisters of unclaimed human remains in there <gasps> and oh this was yeah this was a lot of the patients who had been cremated but oh no one had gosh. come to collect them and they they put out the list they found all the names of the people and a lot of relatives distant relatives okay. came and reclaimed them oh, yeah shit. and there was a there was a documentary called the library of dust that was made about it um it's tragic yeah yeah it was pretty it was pretty mad but also they had a railroad underneath the hospital specifically built one so that they could deliver items to different bits of the hospital but also to transport patients that they didn't want the members of the public to have to come across if they were visiting the hospital because they were worried something might go wrong they'd dangerous, be freaked out. Or... dangerous you know mm. all that sort of stuff and some of the tunnels possibly are still there but you just walk them now or use bicycles um, it's just Prince Andrew in there now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, and then they had a horrible thing. I, I found just horrible things about it. Unfortunately, okay. 1942, there was a mass poisoning by accident. They were serving scrambled eggs, and they accidentally and, and 47 people died from this. Um, they used instead of powdered milk, they used sodium fluoride, <gasps> oh which is a poison god. you would use to kill cockroaches, and that was accidentally added to the scrambled eggs. And 47. Well, I used to work wow. as a. Um, in a kitchen, we had a Christmas party, and instead of putting white sauce on the Christmas pudding, they put garlic sauce on, <laughs> which is a very less problematic version of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to know you can relate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. just saying it's easily done. Yeah, it's easily done. Gosh, I once used cube lube instead of <laughs> my... instead of what. <laughs> 
<laughs> it twisted <laughs> sideways, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> 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 Should we just quickly mention Louise Fletcher, who was oh, yeah. she played Nurse Ratchet in yeah. the oh, cool. in yeah, the film and died last year, sadly. Oh. Um, but she was amazing, and she, I think, she kept herself separate from the rest of the cast, didn't she, for a lot of the filming, so that yeah. she could be an icy authority figure. And did you do that when you were in the the play? Of I'm it, Lucy, always an icy authority figure <laughs> in every situation. I keep myself. Well, didn't you also? take all the clothes off though at one point to I think at the end, yeah at the end of filming wasn't it yeah she go look hey guys look at this all along I was fun <laughs> <laughs> that, it was her saying I'm fun that's right yeah, yeah. She got, she, I think she had her underwear on I don't think she was fully naked maybe she yeah. was fully she naked she wasn't that much fun <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm fun but I'm not like fun it doesn't fun. feel like there must be a better way like bring in some cupcakes in or something <laughs> 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 to ingratiate yourself with your colleagues <laughs> just wait know. till the end of this podcast <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she. Um, there were two others. There was Anne Bancroft and Angela Lansbury were both offered the role, but turned it down because they didn't want to appear so evil on screen. Wow. Mm. This was in an obituary of Louise Fletcher that I read. Um, mm. And also it said in this that she was repeatedly turned down from roles because uh, she was five foot ten. And in those days, a lot of the leading men were much oh, shorter than yeah. that. And she couldn't play roles opposite people who were shorter or about the same height. Oh, so. really? yeah. And actually, in the nurse's yes. cap, she'll be more than six foot. You yeah. know? And Jack Nicholson is quite, I think he's quite a short guy. Yeah, but yeah. it really works for it the works authority, for the yeah, exactly. sort of power struggle happening between them. I just think she's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's on Star Trek. Yeah, that's really? right. She, yeah, she Deep, was a character on Star Trek. Trek. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow. Um, and she, she said that she found her role so disturbing that she also couldn't watch the film it's Star Trek or yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> aliens are scary right? um, did she as in as, as Nurse Ratchet, Ratchet she, yeah she, yeah, she too... found it really hard and she she just found it too disturbing to watch as a wow as a role. it is incredible actually the last time I watched it which was a couple of years ago the person I was watching it with sided with Nurse Ratchet which did make me Think, no, hang on, you've taken the wrong message there. And she said, No, 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 look, the, the point is, she's someone's got to keep order. Um, <laughs> yes. yeah. She's just doing her job. She's just doing a job. If McMurphy was running the place, it would be an absolute be mayhem. <laughs> One last thing just about Ken Cassie, the yeah. author, because he was a pretty amazing author. Um, his method for a certain period when he was writing was to be completely off his head on drugs, and he would write a crazy amount. Then in the morning, he'd sober up and become his own editor. So he'd sort of say, okay, what? Who? let's see what the author's written and chop out all the junk and get down to the good meat wow, of it. Wow, that's yeah. clever. Yeah, yeah. 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 Apart from presumably the first draft was absolute dog shit. <laughs> yeah. It just yeah. didn't make any sense at all. And then you'd think, but hang, what if the editor was drunk as well? <laughs> <laughs> but a different, or I'll and take I'll different make the, drugs. The copy editor will be sober, <laughs> yes. so that'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, as long as the printer is sober, <laughs> it'll be fine. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy, at Andrew Hunter M, James, at James Harkin, and Lucy, at Lucy Porter Comic. That's right. Or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, or you can email us at podcast at qi.com. Also, check out our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there, so you can listen to those. But most importantly of all, if you'd like to see Lucy and her 
pajamas, make sure to get out of your house and into a comedy club to see Wake Up Call. It's the show that she's touring and she's going to be going around the UK doing that. So go Google it, see where she's going and try and see it. Okay, that's it. We're going to be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>